The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 3 The Abbasid Caliphate So then, let's summarise our journey through the rise of Islam so far. In the year 610, a merchant from Mecca called Muhammad received a divine revelation from the Archangel Gabriel. This prompted him to preach the word of Allah. But the plutocratic Meccans were not well receiving of Islam and Muhammad fled to Medina, a journey traditionally referred to as the Hejira. Muhammad was able to gather a religious and political following in Medina, with which he was able to return to Mecca and take control of the city, turning the pagan shrine called the Kaaba into an Islamic shrine. After Muhammad's lifetime, these new Muslim Arab followers of Islam would be ruled by successors, or caliphs, to Muhammad and the influence of Islam expanded, and this would be the beginning of the Rashidun Caliphate. Some Arabs still had to be convinced, either through missions or force, that they should follow Islam, and pledge their allegiance to the Caliphate. And the first Caliph, called Abu Bakr, was successful in uniting the Arabs before turning his attention northwards towards the Byzantines and the Persians. Abu Bakr's successor, Umar, conquered Byzantine Syria and went on to occupy the highly important cities of Damascus and Jerusalem, as well as the important Persian city of Ctesiphon. Umar would also put much work into the infrastructure of the rapidly expanding caliphate, reforming ethnic social structure, military recruitment policy and caliphate taxation. The Rashidun Caliphate was religiously tolerant, but particularly rewarded followers of Islam. Umar's reforms enabled the Caliphate to crush the Persians in battle, which was the beginning of the end of the Sasanian Empire, and allowed him to expand into African territory, taking control of the important Egyptian city of Alexandria, and establishing a new Egyptian capital city at Fustat in the heart of the banks of the Nile of the modern city of Cairo. After Umar was assassinated, Uthman took control of the caliphate, and he would ensure that the Quran, the revelation of Allah through Gabriel to Muhammad, was written down properly for the first time, in what is called the Uthmanic Codex. Uthman would also attempt to promote succession of his family line, the Umayyads. When Uthman himself was assassinated, Ali, who was not a member of the Umayyad line, became the new caliph. Some Muslims would favour Ali, believing that he should have been the rightful successor to Muhammad. However, Ali would have many enemies, including Muhammad's third wife, Aisha, and the Umayyad governor of Syria, Muawiyah, and a group of Quranic fundamentalists called the Harijites. It would be a member of the Harijites who assassinated Ali, and this allowed Muawiyah to take control of the caliphate and start an uninterrupted Umayyad rule of the Islamic caliphate. 
The pro-Alids, who supported Ali and his family in opposition to the Umayyads, were the beginnings of the modern Shia movement of Islam. The Shias consider Ali's son Hussein as a Shia martyr after he died in battle against the Umayyads in the Battle of Karbala in Iraq. The Umayyads would also try to strike at the heart of the troubled Byzantine Empire and their capital at Constantinople on two occasions. Both times the Byzantines resisted the sieges. Umayyad Caliph Abd al-Malik would further reform the caliphate, making Arabic the official language of business, commissioning a standard new coinage, commissioning an effective postal service to relay important messages from one side of the vast caliphate to the other, and investing in the building of glamorous Islamic mosques and temples. Having conquered all of North Africa, the Umayyads now targeted the Iberian Peninsula across the Mediterranean Sea, landing at Gibraltar in 711. The Umayyads took control of Visigothic Iberia, naming it Al-Andalus. Eventually, the Muslims were prevented from expanding further into Europe, but not before reaching the lands of the south of the modern country of France. There, they were checked by the Aquitanians before the Aquitanians appealed to the Franks to assist them to successfully resist another Muslim invasion shortly after. This brings us to the third fitna, the Islamic civil war which saw non-Arab Muslims rise up against the Umayyads and they would appeal to an alternative line of the extended Islamic royal family called the Abbasids who descended from an uncle of Muhammad and Ali and called Abbas ibn Abd al-Muttalib and they would oppose the Umayyads. The Abbasids had their power base in the greater Khorasan, an eastern area of the former Persian Empire. The Umayyads' centralised power was from Damascus within the lands of Syria, but the Umayyads had always struggled to maintain the loyalty of the pro-Alids of Iraqi lands, who considered the city of Kufa as an important centre. Such was the discontent within the caliphate that the Muwali, that is the non-Arab Muslims, supported by the Abbasids, were also supported by the Harijites and many unconverted Persians who remained in the caliphate after Islamic conquest. The culmination of animosities would take place at the Battle of the Zab in 750 with the Great Zab being an Iraqi river that empties into the Tigris. The result was the defeat of the Umayyads by the Abbasids, who were the ones left standing, tall, waving their black standards, some on camelback, as the sun set on that fateful day. The rule of the Caliphate would move from Damascus in Syria to Kufa in Iraq, and the period of the Abbasid Caliphate had begun. The aftermath of the Battle of the Zab was brutal. The Abbasids did everything that they could to prevent an Umayyad uprising. Anyone associated with the Umayyads was killed, and those that remained hidden were coerced out of hiding by a promise of amnesty, only to discover that this was a lie and that they were to be executed too. One of the great leaders of the Battle of the Zab, who helped the Abbasids overthrow the Umayyads, was a Persian called Abu Muslim. Abu Muslim was an extremely capable military leader and a very popular man, which is why the Abbasid Caliph al-Mansur moved to have him executed on ambiguous grounds of him being a heretic to true Islam. An Arab family based in Ifriqiya called the Fihrids 
had managed to gain authority of Al-Andalus, the modern countries of Spain and Portugal, while the Umayyads were facing internal collapse of their caliphate. Initially, the Fihrids were somewhat happy that the Umayyads had been toppled from authority in the Middle East, until the incoming Abbasids insisted upon the Fihrids and their territories in North Africa and Al-Andalus becoming subject to the Abbasids. The Fihrids refused and even went as far as to welcome some important Umayyad refugees into their lands. One of the fleeing Umayyads was a man called Abd al-Rahman, a great-grandson of the great Umayyad Caliph Abd al-Malik. However, when the Umayyads started arriving in Fihrid territory, there was a sudden change of heart from the Fihrids, fearing that the Umayyads may have had ambitions of their own to take control of their territories. So when Abd al-Rahman arrived, he had to remain inconspicuous for fear of his own life. Abd al-Rahman decided that his best chance of drumming up some support was in Al-Andalus, among a population that were not necessarily fully accepting of Fihrid overall. So Abd al-Rahman landed on the southern coast of the Iberian Peninsula and after an initial period of strained and failed diplomacy with the Fihrids of Al-Andalus, Abd al-Rahman was able to gather enough local support to be able to take on the Fihrids on the battlefield. Abd al-Rahman was victorious and set himself up as the new emir or Arab Muslim ruler basing himself at the city of Cordoba. It would take almost 25 years to put down all of the Fihrid rebellions in Al-Andalus, but essentially this was the start of the Emirate of Cordoba, an Umayyad Emirate which arose in the wake of the fall of the Umayyad Caliphate. A Golden Age Despite the chaos of the 8th century within the Islamic Caliphate and the transition between Umayyad and Abbasid dynasties, this area of the world became the new centre of academic advances. Academia made progressions in many areas of the world at different speeds and different levels and across different subjects, but in the same way that Greek and Chinese scholars were respected in the previous millennium and the Egyptians and the Babylonians in the millenniums before that, the Arabic world took over the advancement of knowledge while Europe slipped into a period of relative obscurity. This was because the Arabs were able to amalgamate and progress the academic knowledge of their neighbours, such as the Greco-Romans, the Chinese and the peoples of the Indian subcontinent. Arabic advances in academia have influenced our modern language as Arabic words have filtered into English and other European languages such as algebra, alchemy, algorithm and alkaline. For example, all of these words have the very commonly known Arabic definite article al at the start. We see heavy use of the prefix al across Arabic-speaking lands. Many Arabic names contain the articles such as Abd al-Malik, the much-admired Umayyad Caliph. We also see this in the name of the Arab territory within Hispania named Al-Andalus, and whose name is now preserved as the Spanish Autonomous Community of Andalusia. So the impact of Arabic academia is very apparent in today's world. It wouldn't be fair to say that the Umayyads didn't play their part in the progression of Arabic academia though. The Abbasids simply continued the progress. One man who straddled the period of transition from Umayyad to Abbasid was called Al-Khalil ibn Ahmad al-Farahidi. Al-Khalil was a polymath who was born in the Omani area of the Arabian Peninsula, right the way down on the southeastern coast. 
Al-Khalil's most well-known work was the first known Arabic dictionary, which, as the official language of Islam, is renowned for its importance. Just as Latin had been the stabilising language of the Romans, Sanskrit of the Brahmanists, Akkadian to the Assyrians, so was Arabic to the Muslims. So the work of Al-Khalil would standardise the official language and add stability to the laws of the Caliphate. The Al of alchemy would have been influenced by a very intriguing character of the Abbasid Golden Age. His name is Jabir ibn Hayyan, a Persian-born polymath, and he wrote a vast number of works on a great number of academic subjects, and particularly on chemistry, where his expertise has earned him the reference of the father of Arabic chemistry. So vast are his works that it has been questioned whether one man alone could possibly be responsible for all of it, and that remains a subject for intense debate. Not least of all because some of his works were rewritten in Latin some five centuries later by an anonymous man, possibly from Spain. The scientific world would refer to these rewritten works as the works of Pseudo-Geber. To firstly recognise the original author Jabir ibn Hayyan, but secondly, to understand that whoever wrote them must have altered parts of the text as some of the references within it seems to talk more of the later Latin world scientific practices. The centre of Abbasid culture had been moved to the newly constructed city of Baghdad, north of the ancient city of Tessiphon. It very quickly became a modern and vibrant city of trade and academia. We often celebrate advances in Greek academia far more readily than Arabian academia, and you can put forward your own reasons why you think that might be. But once again, the Al in algebra gives us a great reference to the irrefutable influence of the Arabians on modern mathematical concepts. Mathematicians such as Al-Khwarizmi would build upon the work of the classical world experts by taking mathematical ideas onto a more advanced level. It could have been from his lifetime that the origin of our very own numeric system originated. By revamping the numerical system to a decimal system that had an individual symbol for each number from 0 to 9, advanced calculations were made more practical. It would be after this period that a form of this decimal system would filter through the Maghreb and across the Mediterranean to Al-Andalus, where it would eventually be adopted by Europeans and evolve to be the number system that we all use today, replacing antiquated systems such as the Roman numerals that are only ever really used for stylized numeration nowadays. We are aware of a house of wisdom which existed in Baghdad during the era of the Abbasid Caliphate, and this may have simply been a storage house of recorded information or even a great academic centre, not completely dissimilar to the Great Library of Alexandria from the age of Ptolemaic Egypt. Al-Khwarizmi himself was appointed as the official head of the library at the House of Wisdom, as well as being appointed as the official astronomer of the same establishment. The vastness of the Muslim world now made it easier to share ideas and convey messages across large distances, and not least of all be able to control the Silk Road trade routes now that Muslim influence stretched from the lands of the Iberian Peninsula in the west right the way across to the modern borders of India and China in the east. Baghdad was the centre of the world now, and the city was constructed within round circular walls by the Caliph al-Mansur and referred to as Madina al-Salam, literally the city of peace. Not only would this be a crucial stopping point for land-based merchants, but the city's close proximity to the Tigris River meant that it had good access to the maritime Silk Road also. The Kashmiri people of the Kashmir Valley brought the earliest known velvets to Baghdad, 
which became a highly popular production of the city, as well as silk garments, and these would be distributed all around the known world. Paper production techniques migrated over to Baghdad from the lands of China, as well as some ceramic production techniques. Baghdad would also be known for its superior glass production. The Abbasid policy of religious tolerance and welcoming attitude towards foreign cultures undoubtedly allowed it to become the world's most thriving city. The House of Wisdom is believed to have contained Arabic translations of many other literal works of the world, such as the post-Socratic works from Greek lands, such as those written by Aristotle. Baghdad also contained a modern hospital built on expert biological knowledge of the human anatomy, thanks in part to a book written by a philologist called Al-Azmai, who actually lived in Al-Basra, which we often refer to simply as Basra, which is an Iraqi city which was built near the Persian Gulf. Al-Azmai also wrote works describing the anatomy of horses and camels. The Abbasids also improved upon the Greek astrolabes, which were the devices that referred to the night sky and enabled navigators to pinpoint their location. Not only was this important for maritime travellers and traders, but it would also become a very important device for the Islamic religion itself, which dictates that prayers should be directed towards the Kaaba in Mecca, the most sacred Islamic temple. As wares were taken from Iraq to other areas of the world, so other areas of the world would be slowly introduced to Islam and the religion would begin to spread beyond the borders of the Islamic Caliphate. And so these astrolabes would enable Muslims of the world to identify the Qibla, which is the name of the direction to Mecca. Baghdad during this period was also the base of the fictional character Sinbad the Sailor, who himself was a seafaring explorer and very likely relied on an Islamic astrolabe in order to gain his riches successfully. The Aglabids The lands of Ifriqiya in North Africa were somewhat fragile, with the Arabs who ruled there continually having to fend off Berber uprisings. These lands around the city of Carthage were the traditional home of the Berbers, who over many centuries had seen many foreign influences take control of their lands, beginning with the Phoenicians and continuing with invaders such as the Romans and the Vandals. Now, it had been taken over by Arabs, initially migrating during Umayyad dominance over the Caliphate. The Abbasids had managed to get a firmer grip on these lands towards the end of the 8th century and a man called Ibrahim ibn al-Aghlab was appointed as the Emir of Ifriqiya, a position of rule that was subject to the Abbasids. An Emir from this age would typically be more like a local governor or a satrap than more modern Emirs. This was the beginning of the Aghlabid dynasty rule of the Emirate of Ifriqiya, which recognised the Abbasid Caliphate as their overlords. The one thing that you can say about the North African city of Carthage is that it was at one of the narrower stretches of Mediterranean water between Africa and Europe, and specifically the island of Sicily, which had made this area an extremely hostile area during the First Punic War over a thousand years previous. So the Aglobids of Ifriqiya attempted to invade the island of Sicily. Although certainly not the first time the Arabs had attempted to occupy the island, the Aglobids had more success and the Byzantines were toppled from dominance of the island. The Aglobids set their capital up at Palermo, renaming it Al Madina. And so a period of tension continued between the occupying Aglobids and Byzantines over the course of the next century. Islamic rule over the entire island would not occur until the early 10th century. 
As we know, the political leader of the Islamic Caliphate was called the Caliph. But the religious leaders were often referred to as the Imams. An important schism occurred within the Shia sect of the Muslims following a dispute over the succession to the sixth Imam, Jafar al-Sadi. The majority of today's Shias believe that his son, Musa al-Qadhim, was the correct successor and these believers are popularly called Twelver Shias because they believe that the ultimate twelfth Imam was the Mahdi who disappeared into obscurity to patiently await his time to emerge alongside the Messiah, Jesus, and create the divine kingdom of God in direct opposition to the evils and injustices of the world. Another branch of Shias believe that Musa's younger brother, Ismail ibn Jaffa, was the true Imam, in contrast to the Twelvers. Originally, it would be this branch of Shia Muslims called the Ismaili that would be the dominant Shia Islam branch and it would be thanks to the Ismaili dynasty called the Fatimids who rose to power during the 10th century. The Aghlabids of Ifriqiya had certainly had their hands full when defending their African lands against indigenous Berbers and the Tulanids of Egypt who were a Turkic peoples who ruled Egypt as a vassal state of the Abbasids, until the Abbasids decided that they wanted direct control of Egypt again. However, it would be the Fatimids who would overthrow the Aghlabids in Ifriqiya and take over their territories in North Africa. Decline Going back to the middle of the 8th century when the Umayyads were overthrown by the Abbasids, the Islamic Caliphate was more or less at its greatest extent, stretching from Iberia and the Maghreb in the west to Greater Khorasan in the east. The Umayyads then established an independent emirate of Cordoba shortly after this time, beginning the slow decline of the extent of Abbasid domination. The Rustamids soon raised their autonomy within the caliphate around the modern Algerian city of Tayarid, newly established at the time. This enabled the Idrisids to form their own kingdom in the lands of the modern country of Morocco, establishing a capital at the new city of Fez. The Abbasids were able to maintain African lands as far as the environs of the city of Carthage in the modern country of Tunisia for almost another 100 years before the Turkic Tulanids established autonomy in Egypt, as previously mentioned. So the Abbasids had now lost more of their influence over the lands of North Africa. Persian or Iranian Muslims called the Safarids, originating from Sakastan, would establish an emirate east of the Tigris during the second half of the 9th century. At a similar time, the Bagratids would re-establish Armenian independence in the north, so the size of the Abbasid Caliphate was shrinking down towards its own Iraqi heartlands. One of the most significant events during the course of the Abbasid decline was the rise of the Buyid, dynasty centred around the city of Shiraz in the Fars province, which was the traditional origin of Persian dynasties such as the Achaemenids and the Sasanians. Initially gathering control of a region through expansion, the opportunity arose to target the highly important Abbasid capital of Baghdad. The Buyids were originally in the military service of the Abbasids, but they realised that by staging a coup that they could seize control of Baghdad. When the Buyid military leader Ahmad ibn Buya entered Baghdad in 945, the Abbasid caliph called al-Mustakfi felt that he had no choice but to surrender control of the city to him and give him the honorific name Muiz al-Dawla. Years of families and dynasties in fighting for their own slice of control within the Abbasid Caliphate 
had weakened central rule and brought great instability to the economy. This was the end of effective Abbasid rule of the Caliphate and although the Caliphate continued to exist, the Abbasids were really just rulers in name only, with the Buyids now in real control. This brought about a period in the Islamic Caliphate's history that is historically referred to as the Iranian Intermezzo, which refers to the period in which the Abbasids were no longer ruling their own Caliphate. If we analyse the Buyid journey, we can suggest that the warriors of mountainous northern Iranian lands were highly admired for their ruthlessness, which is hardly surprising when you consider that this is in the direction of the Eurasian steppe, an area renowned for producing waves of nomadic warriors with a frighteningly heartless attitude to battle and conquest. A few hundred years earlier, it was the Huns, and now it was the Turks, and the Abbasids had commissioned the hardy Buyids, who originally hailed from the Daylam in northern Iran, to defend Abbasid territory. Daylamite peoples had always been highly respected for the warrior abilities going back to the days of the Sasanian Empire. But now the Buyids had recognised their own abilities and had gone from land defenders to land controllers. We briefly mentioned the Fatimids earlier in the episode. The Fatimids took control of the lands in Ifriqiya previously occupied by the Akhlabids and by the end of the 10th century the Fatimids had not only pushed their influence eastwards to capture Egypt and push Abbasid influence out of Africa but they had also taken the lands of the Levant including Jerusalem and even the lands of the Hejaz which was a clear indication of how the Abbasids slowly lost their influence on the original lands of their caliphate. Territory was there for the taking, for whoever could establish enough power and influence over their rivals. So this brings us to a very anticlimactic end to the episodes. The Abbasids took over a thriving caliphate from the Umayyads and oversaw a period of the most advanced academic and scientific times that the world had ever seen. It was a glorious golden age. However, their territory was vast and the central office had absolutely no ability to keep the most powerful ruling dynasties of the individual areas of the caliphate from pursuing their own ambition for power and glory. So the spoils and riches of the caliphate were being constantly battled for and the influence of the central Abbasids weakened in a decline not completely like that of the Zhou dynasty of China in the previous millennium, where the rulers in name were not the rulers in fact. And the provinces had a constant urge to control the wealth going in and out of the imperial realm. It would not be long before another entity emerged that would originally serve the Muslims as mercenaries, but then have an ambition of their own to control the lands of Persia and beyond, and we will tell their story next time. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast episode of the History of the World podcast. And uh, we uh, this week we spoke about the Abbasid Caliphate, and it brings our story of the Middle East uh, into the period of the decline of the Arab dynasties and the rise of the Turkic dynasties. So next week we're going to plot that rise of the Turks and their rise to power in this region. Uh, that will also bring us nicely into uh, the the story of uh, the Byzantines because of course the Turks then uh, are a major threat to Anatolia. And um, so it sort of opens up a new chapter of history. Um, so very interesting indeed. And of course, the Byzantine Empire, well, they've got their own stories. And, and we're, of course, going to cover that in the coming weeks as well. So um, all very interesting stuff coming up. Great medieval 
sort of Game of Thrones style uh, storytelling to to come. So uh, we're all looking forward to that. But thank you for listening to this week's. Uh, let's get on to other stuff. The Ancient World Cup. So, of course, every week now we introduce the uh, the latest news for the Ancient World Cup, which is a competition that we're running here at the History of the World podcast uh, to find out who you believe are the greatest uh, peoples of the ancient world. And uh, we've uh, got 64 entrants. We're trying to whittle that down initially to 32 by putting uh, all of the teams into 16 groups of four. And uh, last week was Group A. We saw uh, the uh, the success of the Hephthalites and the Mochi people go through to the knockout rounds. This week uh, was Group B. So Group B now concluded. Um, and uh, our teams were the Pirates, of whom uh, King Pyrrhus is obviously the more famous uh, member of the Pirates, uh, the Macedonians, who were led by Alexander the Great across uh, many Asian lands up to the Indus Valley. Uh, the Carthaginians, who, um, who are probably more famously remembered for the Punic Wars and the adventures of Hannibal uh, in trying to reach the Italian peninsula crossing the Alps. And uh, then, of course, the ancient Egyptians, who we all know of, um, the pyramid builders and uh, the great tomb builders in the Upper Nile. So... Um, these uh, these were the four teams that were competing this week. Um, I'm pleased now to announce the results. Uh, it was an interesting week in actual fact. Um, we had 59 votes uh, this week, which is excellent stuff because um, I think um, I think the previous week, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we had um, around 35 votes, so it can increase considerably, and I think that's probably because. People are much more familiar with the teams this week. So um, let's announce the results. Um, firstly, uh, we'll, we'll announce in last place, maybe unsurprisingly, uh, we've, we've only got two votes, sadly. Uh, the Epirates, um, which so that makes up 3% um, of the vote. So rock bottom of the group, the Epirates. So we say goodbye to them in the competition. Um I'm going to announce the winners of the group were unsurprisingly the ancient Egyptians. They ran off with it, really. They got off to a very quick start and never gave it up. So uh, they ended up with uh, 44% of the vote, the ancient Egyptians. So they very much finished top of the group. Now, the story of the other two teams, the Macedonians and the Carthaginians, was that the Macedonians sort of raced off ahead. Um, so they were clear second favourites. But as the week went on, the Carthaginians uh, were gradually clawing back this deficit. And, um, and when I last um, updated the, um, I think it, if I'm not mistaken, it was on Friday, I last updated it. It was getting very, very close indeed. And, and I, I, you know, I thought the Carthaginians would catch the Macedonians. So let's find out uh, what the final outcome was. So in second place, and the second team advancing alongside the ancient Egyptians from Group B with 28% of the vote were the Macedonians. The Macedonians. So we've lost the Carthaginians. They were only three votes behind uh, the Macedonians. The Carthaginians with 24% of the vote. So we say goodbye to them. We say goodbye to Hannibal and his elephant. So... Um, yeah, quite a quite a shock exit, perhaps. Maybe the Carthaginians, that mighty empire over many centuries of the Western Mediterranean. So, anyway, that's it for Group B. That is all done and dusted now, finished, and we move on now to Group C. So, Group C is this week's group, this coming week, and the four teams competing this week are the Sasanian Persians. So, the last Persian dynasty uh, before the rise of the Arabs and the Islamic Caliphates. Uh, the Philistines, whose origins are a little bit hazy, maybe wonder if they were sea peoples moved into the lands of the Levant, but they established uh, their uh, their sort of colony, if you like, or their or their new kingdom, the Philistines, on the banks of the Mediterranean. There on the Levant, and very uh, famous uh, historical stories against uh, battles against the Israelites 
and um, maybe uh, we could just uh, quite easily say that they're the cultural um, ancestors of the modern-day Palestinians. Palestinians. Um, the Gauls, we've got the Gauls in this group, are the, who are the Celtic peoples who the Romans stumbled across, and it took Julius Caesar many, many years uh, to eventually uh, conquer these uh, these peoples, but their their uh, cultural influence is certainly very well known, and uh, is a very uh, very much a part of the, of this era of history. Um, and uh, of course, the Israelites are the are the fourth team, and uh, we could, we don't need to say much more about them. They they really are the uh, the stars of the Bible, really, and uh, there's we. Historical evidence of the Israelites um, during the early uh, first millennium BCE is, is quite sketchy and, and really we only have the biblical references. Um, but uh, certainly the kingdom of Israel and the stories of uh, Solomon and David um, really are the, uh, the, the, the big sort of um, the big plus points of the, the the Israelites in terms of pinpointing where they exist in history. So they're the four teams. We'll of, of course be posting a little bit more about them um, as the week goes on. As usual on Twitter, we tend to sort of give you a bit of background information halfway through the week on on the four teams as well. So it's the Sasanian Persians, the Philistines, the Gauls, and the Israelites. Voting starts very very soon. Listener messages and reviews. We got a uh, message from Levi, who's put, Mr. Hasler, I recently supported you on Patreon. When my donation reaches the required predetermined but unknowable amount, I would ask that you read one of the first stories I ever read, the great Panjandrum himself. This won't require an episode, only a moment, as this is very short. Relatedly... As I listened to the last episode, I dreamt that you and I were climbing a cliff beside a thundering waterfall. I slipped on the wet rocks and reached out to you to arrest my fall. But with a dispassionate glance, you placed your hands in your pockets and watched me plummet away into the mist. You'll pay for that. E.G. Young, uh, Eric Young, a very, uh, a very... Uh, well-known um, friend of the podcasters, but hi, Chris. Um, I was going through my emails, which I was terribly behind in doing, and came across his email he sent some time ago. Do I still qualify for suggesting a topic? Let me know. So basically, what Eric's uh, replying to me on um, is that when um, any patron hits $100 in total contributions, they're allowed to um, uh, to elect to um uh, to commission a podcast episode on the subject of their choice and this it doesn't matter like something you go on page uh, on patreon and it says um for example we like submit a hundred dollars per month to qualify for the reward i don't care about that i mean if you if you submit one dollar a month for a hundred months then i'll still allow you to have the hundred dollar reward and um the um the history of the world podcast Illuminati members are are accruing their way up to that point, and we've done special episodes for people. Um, Patreon, a new um patrons this week are Levi Faster and Lynn Eulish, both now new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you for assisting, helping out, and contributing uh, towards the future of the podcast. I I did go to Waterstones in Piccadilly this week and spent far too much of your lovely donations on uh, some new material which will help me to write a much more comprehensive um, account of the medieval world over the course of the next uh, year or two. So um, your your money is being spent wisely, you'll be pleased to know. Um, if you want to support the podcast, then simply go to the uh, historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and click on the Patreon link. And there you can make monthly contributions and help me to make the best podcast possible. 
Uh, Big Slice has written in and said, uh, hey, Chris, just wanted to drop you another line. I'm contributing uh, to enthusiastically follow your podcast. Have re-listened to the whole thing again. This time cross-referencing each episode with my growing library of history books, all of which I've bought specifically for this purpose. I've always been interested in history, especially in a timeline-esque, this happened, then this happened, and then this happened kind of way. And the sheer insanity of your project trying to cover all of history is what drew me in. You've got me interested in some of the other podcasts that I don't even attempt uh, that don't even attempt the breadth of your podcast while taking a deeper dive into the more specific subject matters, such as Dominic Perry's The History of Egypt, Mike Duncan's The History of Rome, and Mark Vinnett's History of North America. In addition to real history, do you find yourself delving into alternative history, for example, the various works of Harry Turtledove, or even works of junky but delicious history-esque fantasy like World War Z? Um, after all, isn't history simply a collection of stories about things that may have actually happened told from the point of view of historians that have narrated these tales? I, I have only one concern. Please, please, please try not to wear yourself out. It would be tragic if you were unable to finish your podcast simply because you had lost your love for doing it. I'm sure that I'm not only speaking for myself when I say I'd be more than happy to listen to several more unscripted episodes sprinkled hither and thither if it means that we get to witness a transition from past history to present history. Um, thank you very much, uh, Big Slice. I think your real name is Jason. You're from Washington State, USA. Um, yep, um, a lot you wrote there. Um, to be honest, I'm not really into historical fiction as much as you might imagine. Um, it's... I... I think, um, and and I've sort of replied to you as well, Jason. I reply to everyone who emails in, um, but generally speaking, I mean, my enthusiasm towards history is an insatiable desire to understand the world that I live in today. So, by reading historical fiction, it's not really, um, it's not really uh, getting my juices flowing as much as it does reading real history and, and seeing how the world developed into the world that we know today. And that's really what fascinates me the uh the, the the wiring behind uh or the wiring underneath the board is is what i'm interested in um but thank you very much yeah i'm um i'm 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 sure we're not going to be slowing down now i've had a nice break between volume three and volume four and um i'm ready to go again i've written a lot of episodes in advance so there shouldn't be any reason why i should uh hold up the process of volume four going forward so but thank you so much jason that's very kind of you to write that message so thank you um dominique harbour has written in put hi m hasler oh maybe that's mr hasler hi mr hasler i'm new to your podcast i discovered it through spotify i'm really happy i found you history of the world is the only thing i'm listening to lately thank you for your time to educate sapiens like me um that sounds like um, that sounds like someone wrote a song, didn't they? Sapiens like me. Maybe someone can uh, enlighten me. Um, uh, Israel. Someone's written an, an email. The title is Israel from Dwayne Green. Thought you might enjoy the book, The Invention of the Land of Israel. Regards, Dwayne. Now, I haven't come across that. Um, I did look it up online, and it looks like a. A bit more of a um, a sort of a deconstruction of the history of Israel, um, and an attempt to sort of uh, write um, what may be a truer history than than we might suspect the Bible has given us. So uh, it certainly looks like an interesting book, and it, it may well end up being added to my collection at some point. Who knows? Uh, Shelby has written in and said, I have recently started the podcast and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm looking forward immensely to volumes two and three because of my personal interest, but volume one has been fascinating so far. I really enjoy the transitions and your clear enthusiasm for the subject. I'm very glad you've put this podcast together and can't wait to hear more. Uh, thanks, Shelby. That's a very kind message. Um, I think that's it. I, I think the only other message that I did, I did want to read out is uh one from David Draffin who has um is 
is attempting to rally up some support for um, an extremely good and close friend of the podcast, Nick Barksdale, um, of the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages, um, who has uh, is who's been struggling to overcome a heart infection. As um, um, you know, uh, it's uh, it's not it's not been good. Um, and uh, we're really keeping our fingers crossed that Nick uh, pulls through and uh, and he rejoins us again on on, on the history front. And certainly, um, you know, we we give our best wishes to him and uh, his family, his wife, um, and uh, who's uh, uh, they've already got a, a child and, a, and, a, and another one on on the on the way. So we really do hope that Nick does pull through. Um, um, please definitely, definitely, definitely support his uh, YouTube channel page, The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Um, be kind enough to consider contributing and, and being a part of the, the page. Um, it appears that um, David Draffin, who is a producer who, um, who has worked with Nick uh, closely, um, is also working with the website called the World History Encyclopedia. It's quite a good uh, web page there, and uh, certainly one that I actually financially contribute towards. And um, it seems that they're getting on board with um, trying to start a GoFundMe page. So we're we're really going to try and um, sort of look to help Nick and his family uh, out at this very very difficult time. So uh, Nick. Um, as always, you will always have my best wishes and uh, look forward to a speedy recovery and, and looking forward to our next interview, which uh, inevitably when you get better, we will surely conduct another video interview to go alongside the one that we already did a couple of years ago. So looking forward to that, Nick. And um, listen, that's that's about it for this week. Let's wrap it up. It's uh, uh, all done and dusted for the uh, for the Arab caliphates. Um there will be more Arab caliphates, but now they will be dominated by a new Islamic entity um, after the conversion of the Seljuk Turks, which will be the subject of next week's podcast episode. So until then, um, have a great week and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.